Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number three on October 7th, 2016, coming to you out of the Central Library in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Today's main topic is agriculture, how we practice it today, and how we'll have to change. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and our DIY feature, which covers clover lawns this week. Last week we talked about the environment, we talked about climate change, we talked about the human role in climate change and how we're going to have to adapt to a world that has experienced a lot more climate change and that is without fossil fuels. We also talked about how climate change doesn't happen in isolation, how climate change is linked to agricultural change, social organization, trade, resilience, and how each one of these changes and affects the others. Today, uh, we're going to talk about agriculture, but really all of these arguments and all of these things I'm talking about are outlined in a book called Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? that I wrote in the last couple of years. It just came out with Rutledge last week. Uh, It's available on their website, and it will be up on Amazon soon. It's already there for pre-order, and that's the last I'll plug it. I promise I don't want to inundate you with an advertisement for my book, but a lot of what I'm talking about today and in the next few podcasts is informed by my study of ancient civilizations and how they rise and fall, as well as the similarities between their rise and fall and what our society is going through today. The central theme of this book is collective hubris. This is the idea that as a society becomes more and more successful, it doesn't think that it has to adapt to the world changing around it. Sound familiar? We see this with the ancient Maya, with the ancient Romans, basically all of these large-scale ancient societies that reached an enormous scale but weren't able to adapt to a world that changed around them. We'll go into more detail about this topic on the final podcast of this series, but today's topic is agricultural, so let's get right into that. If you think about it, we have to do five things to stay alive. Sleep, eat, drink, breathe, and eliminate. And if you want to talk about the long-term survival of the species, we have to reproduce. Eating is one of the most constant needs that we have, and it's almost completely within our control. Why wouldn't we concentrate on making great food, uh, having a really robust and wonderful food system? Our society today has almost made eating seem like an inconvenience. So much so that some companies put out all-in-one foods, will skip meals. Really, we are missing out on one of the great pleasures we can have in life. Agriculture has existed for about 10,000 years. It started out first as small-scale horticulture and later expanded to be large-scale agriculture. Now, today, we have industrial agriculture. An early cautionary tale about agriculture comes from Mesopotamia. This is the first region to experience farming at a large scale. The Mesopotamians developed canal-fed irrigation, and this inadvertently led to field salinization through a number of different processes that I don't really have time to get into today. Instead of stopping the process that led to the salinization or the fields becoming too salty to grow food, they increased the land under the plow. They increased their field size, but continued the same practices that led to salinization. They didn't fix the underlying problem, they just doubled down on a system that was in failure. This led to the collapse of these large cities that depended on the large production of these fields. Now, this is a gross oversimplification, and if you want the full story, you can avail yourself to certain books that were mentioned earlier in the podcast that I promised not to mention again. But there was a lot going on. There was climate change, there was social upheaval, there was... There were trade disputes, there were 
uh, disasters, all sorts of things that they had to deal with in addition to a failing agricultural system. So it wasn't just agriculture, but it was a major factor in the rise and fall of cities in Mesopotamia. Now, if we look at modern agriculture, we have to see it really as an outgrowth of industrialization. And like everything else today, it is completely dependent on and fueled by fossil fuels. In one sense, modern agriculture is really a marvel. It produces an overabundance of food. And I say that with the realization that 805 million people were undernourished between 2012 and 2014, according to the UN. Yet we produced enough food to feed everybody on this planet, which is 7.34 billion as of yesterday. In another sense, modern agriculture is a failure. It causes a lot of environmental degradation, not only the clearing of uh, rainforests and other environments to create fields, draining of swamps, etc. It also overtaxes finite water resources, encourages runoff. Uh, the Great Dust Bowl of the 30s comes to mind. Another problem with modern agriculture is that it puts yield over quality, that is, quantity over quality. We'd rather have a lot of poor quality wheat, and I mean nutritionally poor quality wheat, than less high quality wheat. One of the major problems with modern agriculture is its dependence on fossil fuels, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, so I'm not going to go into detail here. Modern agriculture also lacks natural mimicry. That is, it doesn't recreate successful ecosystems in nature. It makes something completely artificial. Monocrops don't really show up in nature, at least not successfully or not for very long. One book that you might find really interesting about this topic is written by Fraser and Remus. It's called Empires of Food, Feast, Famine, and the Rise and Fall of Civilizations. And I think my favorite line out of the whole book is that, quote, all the evidence tells us that industrial farming is unsustainable, but the world has been bribed into blindness by a ham sandwich, end quote. And I really think that sums up why we are so complacent about our agricultural system. For the first time in human history, we haven't had a major food scare like we've had at other times in history that have led to riots and the collapse of large-scale communities. I should also thank Glenn Stone. He's a professor of anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, he introduced me to much of the reading that I've done as background for this podcast and a lot of my thinking about agriculture. He's really influenced my thinking on this. You can check out his blog at fieldquestions.com. Okay, let's turn to fossil fuels and why modern agriculture is so tied into fossil fuels. Nitrogen fertilizer comes not from local resources, but from the bowels of factory in China and Texas. This is where atmospheric nitrogen is compressed at something like 400 atmospheres with the Harbor-Bosch process to form bound nitrogen that plants can absorb. This requires a huge amount of energy, usually it's supplied by natural gas or electricity. This fertilizer is then transported and spread by fossil-fueled vehicles. The crops are harvested, processed, and transported, also using fossil fuels. Many crops have to be refrigerated the whole way, which, again, largely relies on fossil fuels. Some plants, like asparagus, when you eat them in January, have been flown in by jet plane, which is a huge use of fossil fuels for a food that you're eating out of season. Now, I can hear some people out there already complaining, wait, 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 modern agriculture is way more efficient. It's industrialized agriculture. By definition, it's more efficient than traditional forms of agriculture. And so if you ask, isn't modern agriculture more efficient, you're not really asking a full question because that's just too simplistic of a way to look at it. In what way is it efficient? In worker hours, per person, per calorie, 
in some ways, yeah, it's, it's very efficient. But the actual production might not be when you take into account all of the chain of events that have to happen for that agriculture to happen. It has efficiencies in growing, harvesting, and processing food, but a lot of those efficiencies are lost in the transportation, infrastructure, marketing, profit, and retail required to get that food from farm to market. Also, expensive farming equipment doesn't reproduce itself. Back in the day, oxen, horses, and cows were self-reproducing farm equipment. Today, you have to take out a loan for a tractor or a combine or a thresher, etc., and you have to pay back the loan on that regardless of how well your crops do. Some of you might have heard of the Green Revolution. This was the idea that in the 1950s and 60s, a billion lives were saved from starvation by high-yield wheats. These were developed by somebody who would go on to win the Nobel Prize, Norman Borlaug. He bred wheat that had a huge head full of grain, and in order to keep that wheat from falling over, he had to crossbreed it with a dwarf variety that had a very short stock so it could support the increased weight of the, the grain head. When this wheat was introduced into India, the wheat yield doubled. And this was the so-called Green Revolution, the doubling of wheat yield that saved people from starvation. But this is really only half of the story. The new wheat required 12 times more fertilizer. So some of the increase in yield wasn't just from the size of the new wheat. In addition, USAID, or the United States Agency for International Development, decreased grain shipments to India. This caused the price to rise, which incentivized farmers to grow more wheat. Furthermore, the new crops were even subsidized by the Indian government. So you can see it's not just the production of this new type of wheat that led to the so-called Green Revolution. It was a number of social factors that contributed to it as well. So really, how much did Norman Borlaug and his new wheat contribute? It's kind of hard to say because all of these inputs had different impacts. And again, I'm going to have to thank Glenn Stone for his discussion of this topic. That uh, helped me out a lot. If we think about the flow of nutrients, industrial agriculture is really a one-way flow. Fertilizers, seeds, machines, they all get brought to the farm. Seeds can't be reused because Monsanto and other companies make farmers sign contracts that you cannot reuse the seed from year to year. So you have to bring in these seeds, they require heavy fertilizers, all these things are called external inputs, right? You have to bring them in. Plants and soil can't absorb all the fertilizer, so up to 50% of the fertilizer is washed into lakes and streams. This is when we get these algae blooms, like happened in Lake Erie a few years ago. This is a huge waste of hard-won nitrogen. Remember that nitrogen is bound from atmospheric nitrogen in factories and then transported, so we're wasting all of that. Up to 50% of that energy is now just wasted, washed away. Once harvested, the crops leave the farm and they entered the industrial production stream. Nutrients move from factory to farm to consumers to the waste stream. It's a one-way street. Let's contrast this with non-industrial agriculture, which is much more of a closed-looped system. The major input in non-industrial agriculture is sunlight. Of course, industrial agriculture also uses sun sunlight, but it's not the major input. Plants in non-industrial agriculture are grown and often eaten on site, and so where does the waste so-called waste go? Well, it goes back into the compost bin. It goes back into the soil. Seeds don't have to be brought in. They're saved from year to year. Animals provide the traction for plowing and harvesting, plus they reproduce themselves. So again, you don't have to buy external things as much as you do in industrial agriculture. If we look at natural ecosystems, they are often endangered by three qualities, crowding, communication, and exclusivity. 
This means that when a single type of plant is too crowded, diseases can easily pass from plant to plant. Think about a field of wheat, right? That's a crowded, there are lots of plants in a small area. They have communication with one another. Each wheat plant can bump up against the wheat next to it when the wind blows. And it's exclusive, it's just those wheat plants, right? So this is really dangerous because a single fungus or a single disease has easy access to all of the wheat. And if it can get one of them, it can get all of them. And this is what makes monocropping so dangerous. It's unlike natural systems. If you look at forests or even prairies, there's a wide variety of plants there, and they help provide buffers to one another so that a disease or a pest can't wipe out an entire single species. Modern agriculture has also traded quality for quantity. Wheat has been milled to separate the bran and the germ from the starch and the gluten. What we get today in the store when we buy flour is very different from the flours of even 200 years ago. Our modern flours have more carbohydrates and water and less protein, good fats, fibers, vitamins, and minerals than the flours that were milled 200 years ago. Super high yields have also led to a glut of corn. We actually produce way more corn than we can actually use, which is why we have learned to produce so many different types of products from corn. Corn is now broken down into many, many products from paste and sweeteners to fuel and acids. The sustainable agriculture of tomorrow requires a wholesale rebuild from the ground up. The centerpiece of this rebuild has to be removing fossil fuels, which I know sounds impossible. How are we going to feed the entire world without using fossil fuels? Well, that's why I've started this research institute. We need to answer questions like that. If we don't look at how to seriously solve these problems, we're going to have major disasters and people starving. We should build a system that takes into account a variety of species living in an area, and not only where we are, but downstream of where we are. Right? It has to take the whole biota and the whole ecosystem into account. We should try and mimic successful natural ecosystems. The world has been running experiments for billions of years what sorts of combinations of plants work together. We should learn from that. We should try and mimic them. Also, the system should be as straightforward as possible. The modern agricultural system is exceedingly complicated, and we need to pare that down to complexity and then down to simplicity if possible. My favorite example of this is that Brazilian soybeans are cheaper for me to buy than soybeans that are grown right here in Missouri, and that, that should be a red flag. One solution we can look at is growing high-value, difficult-to-transport foods closer to home. Things that are really difficult to transport because they are fragile, say lettuce or other types of produce. It is very resource intensive to grow and transport these things. If we could grow them ourselves, that would really put a, an ease on the agricultural places that produce all of these. For example, California right now has been fighting drought for years. California grows so much of our produce that the entire country is really contributing to the water scarcity out west. We're, in effect, through market forces, forcing California to use all their water. If, on the other hand, we could grow our own greens and other hard-to-transport veggies in our own yards or even just communities. It would really ease the burden on California. And it would put us in a better position for a fossil fuel-free future, which has way too many Fs to say again. We need to keep our nutrients local by composting instead of flushing and throwing away vast amounts of nitrogen. Again, the nitrogen that once it's bound in these factories into fertilizer, we should try and 
save that nitrogen as much as we can because in the future we won't be able to produce it as easily. Before the advent of the Haber-Bosch process, there were wars fought over bird guano and other nitrogen sources. People dug up old battlefields to get the nitrogen out of the soil. We need to avoid that in the future by maintaining and keeping the nitrogen that we've won through a lot of energy expenditure at these factories. We have to keep that in the soil and not let it wash out and wash away. Another thing that might have a, a little more pushback is reducing our meat consumption. It's really an underappreciated way to reduce our load on the environment. And I know that eating meat is a commonplace every day or even every meal occurrence in America. So the average American consumes about 2,700 calories per day. And a third of those calories come from meat. Now if you think about raising meat, we need to feed corn to cattle and make feed for other animals. We need about 4,000 calories to grow every 1,000 calories of meat that the average American eats every day. So really, we're eating about 6,000 plant calories each day because 4,000 of those calories have to go to create the meat that we're going to eat. If we reduced to a quarter pound of meat twice a week, it would more than half our daily caloric needs. And that would be a huge reduction of the pressure that we would put on a agricultural system. If we had community-raised animals, it might be a more sustainable way to feed people in the future. We would eat less meat if we had to go through the whole trouble of slaughtering and butchering uh, our own meat. And I, and I know this from experience. And um, in about a month, um, I'm going to be having a series of podcasts on hunting and butchering. Another example uh, that might be able to be used in the future is the rice paddy. It is a system that has been developed that mimics a pond. Rice is a grass and it grows in paddies. The paddies are the water is fertilized by fish droppings and there's also algae in the water that fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere and also fertilizes the plants. Paddies that are worked by hand are even more efficient producers of calories than industrial fields of corn or wheat. If you consider the calories bound in the fossil fuels used to harvest industrial rice fields, it's actually more calorically efficient to harvest rice, and there's a couple of different papers on this. I should thank uh, Glenn again for introducing me to that example. Another useful strategy for the future is polycropping, right, which is the obvious opposite of monocropping, which is what we have now. One of the most famous examples of polycropping is the ancient Maya planted corn, beans, and squash together because the corn would grow up, the beans would use the corn plant as a trellis, and the squash would spread over the ground and suppress weeds. By planting these three plants together, it would create a really robust agricultural system. And there are other ideas, uh, other symbiotic plants that we can put together to get more yield out of the same area. The ancient Inca planted a variety of plants at various altitudes in a number of different fields because their environment was so unpredictable, especially with El Nino occurring in many years. That way they knew that at least something would survive. Think of our agricultural system as a not very diverse stock portfolio. We have a lot invested in corns and soy. The ancient Inca invested in a number of different types of potatoes and all kinds of other plants and grasses in order to make sure that they had food to survive. We need a much more diverse stock portfolio in a future agricultural system.
A greater diversity of foods is a hedge against fungus, a disease, or a pest that wipes out any one of these single crops. It's okay, we have a diverse food portfolio, we can fall back on the other plants. Unfortunately, cities might be difficult to sustain in a post-fossil fuel world, as the supplies needed to support so many people are really dependent on fossil fuels for transport, not to mention growing. A more dispersed population might be better able to feed itself. We have to remember the interconnectedness of things, right? I'm not just talking about the collapse of agriculture in a bubble. Today I've really been talking about agriculture because it's one of those things we need to rely on every day to get our food. But changes in the environment will affect agriculture in obvious ways, and I've also outlined a couple of ways in which agriculture can affect the environment. Just today, there was a study that came out showing that agriculture was one of the major drivers of the uptick in methane that we're seeing. We also have to look at trade. Trade facilitates and builds dependency on our current agricultural system. Without a robust exchange network, we couldn't live in cities and depend on food being brought into it. A change in that trade process, which is what we're going to be talking about next week, is going to require a change in our agricultural system. They're linked. Much of our social organization, how we exist and relate to one another, is also linked to food, not just on the you know sharing food level, but being able to live so close together requires a robust agricultural system, which again has to be redesigned if we're going to survive in a post-fossil fuel world. Without the safety of stored food, we might have trouble living through disasters. Right now, a hurricane is bearing down on the southern east coast of the United States. Luckily, there's a lot of food saved up that can be dispersed very quickly to the people that are fleeing this area. If our agricultural system becomes imperiled or collapses, we're not going to be able to withstand disasters when they happen. All of these things are linked together, so we can't just look at the collapse of agriculture or the changing environment. We have to look at them all together, and that's really what we're going to be doing over the next few podcasts. Next time, uh, we're going to be talking about trade. The time after that, we will discuss social organization, and then finally we're going to be discussing disasters and catastrophes and how we respond to them before bringing it all together in kind of a a summary podcast in a couple of weeks. Let's move on to our DIY feature, which this week is clover lawns, and you can see instructions for making a clover lawn on our website at the blog, but in short, Making a lawn is kind of an absurd waste of time. I mean, really, the amount of time and effort we spend creating a grass lawn is a little ridiculous when you think about it from a functional point of view. It does nothing other than make a carpet of green that we can look at. At least clover is a lot easier to maintain. It only grows to six inches high. Uh, You have to reseed it every two years or let it go to seed itself and it will do the process for you. It's high in protein. If you have chickens, they'll love to eat it. Um, You just have to make sure that you don't let them destroy it by eating too much in one area. You have to keep them from being on it at 24 hours a day, otherwise they will destroy it, just like any other vegetation. It's not unique to clover. Once upon a time, clover seeds were included with grass seeds, and lawns had clovers and grass because clover fixes nitrogen into the soil. It's a natural symbiotic fertilizer. However, World War II happened and we created all these factories that produced nitrogen. 
at this point it was used for bombs, right? All that energy that is compressed to create the nitrogen can be freed all at once, and that's why nitrogen is sometimes used for explosives. Well, after World War II, there was much less need for explosives, and so many of these factories were converted into fertilizer factories. This is why sometimes fertilizer factories blow up. They're essentially producing explosives that also work as fertilizer. In the 1950s and 60s, with the growing prosperity in the United States, it was seen as important to have a pristine lawn without clover, just grass that you had to apply extra fertilizer to because there was very cheap and abundant fertilizer. There was a lot of social pressure. Nowadays, I think, I hope, that social pressure is shifting to a more ecological friendly sort of idea. And a clover lawn is a great way to cut out a major expenditure of wasted time and effort. Even if you don't have chickens, your rabbits and, and other local populations of animals will really appreciate it. You can even eat it as long as you're not allergic to clover. More on that in the actual blog. Briefly, what you do is you will kill your grass, and I outline a couple of different green ways to do this. You don't need to use chemicals, but you do need probably a little elbow grease and or thyme. Once you have killed your grass, you spread the seed. Um, you need a couple of different types of rake for this. You water it until it's established, and then it's just minor maintenance throughout the year. And I outline all of this on the blog. It's, it's really easy, and I think it makes a really pretty lawn. It's a really nice, bright, strong green. It can be very drought-resistant. I mean, there's a lot of great things that clover lawns can bring to your lawn. Um, in my experience, my chickens love it. You have to watch out for invasive weeds until it's really well established. If you mow it down, which you can do and keep it a little shorter than its maximum height of six inches, you might have to fight with weeds because the weeds will have more sunlight to grow up. If you let your clover grow all natural, it will often blot out the sun hitting the soil, so you get a lot less weed competition. And now for our research updates. This is just a brief recap of the research we've been having uh, go on this week at the Institute. Speaking of clover lawns, we reseeded our clover lawns. We also added tomatoes to the aquaponics system. I keep promising an update or a, a full post on the aquaponics system, and I promise it is coming. We're lining up interviews for future podcasts, and I will be interviewed very soon for the Terra Informa podcast, and I'm really looking forward to that. I'll post a link to that when it's available on our website. We're building a list of board members for the journal. If you're interested in joining our board, uh, send me an email and a, and a brief description of yourself, and we can start chatting about that. And we're con continuing to build our online presence. Uh, we're now on Twitter and Facebook. Please uh, like us and subscribe to us there. Now let's move on to our news roundup. Uh, we'll take a look at this weekend low-tech news. There's some really neat DIY uh, posts this week. Uh, one from Walden Labs, which is really, I look forward to the post every day from Walden Labs. They have a lot of great stuff going on. They have a primer on tree bark flowers, which is something that I've never gotten into but am really interested to try. I've done acorn flowers, and I hope to do a post on that later this fall. The Natural Building blog has a nice video about turf houses in Iceland, and you can get to take a tour of these really interesting uh, low-tech houses. 
My two favorite posts this week come from NPR and Grist. Both encourage people to buy quality goods and repair them instead of buying disposable things. NPR reports on a proposed tax break in Sweden for those who repair their appliances and goods instead of buying new ones. In some cases, the repair person would be paid largely through the tax break. Grist gives you instructions on how to care for and improve the longevity of a sweater, but it's really applicable to all kinds of clothing. And again, clothing is something that will be discussed at a future date. I think I can line up an interview with a friend of mine who is very into aesthetics and the long-term sustainability of aesthetics. Spoiler alert, the post suggests that you buy a good sweater that has a timeless sort of uh, cut to it so that it will look good in 20 years and then take care of it rather than buying a cheap version that will only last for a few years. There's a lot of ecological benefit to buying something that is good quality once and taking good care of it. Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news to see the links to the stories we discussed and more news on the environment, research, and op-ed pieces, visit the low-tech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Uh, You can also follow the link in our podcast profile. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at St. Louis Public Library's Creative Experience Recording Room. Thanks, guys. Our intro music was Here Comes the 8-Bit Empire off the album 8-Bit Empire by Ozed. Thanks, Ozed. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attributions and Share Alike license, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. Uh, Give us a rating. It really helps. I'd be grateful for your feedback, which you can leave me on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can also find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute. It's all one word, .wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and also reach me directly by emailing me at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks, and take care.